to invite you to take your Bibles and we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew this morning. Uh, Matthew chapter 8. We're going to be in verses 5 through 13. And I just want to invite you church to, um, as we go to the Lord in prayer this morning, uh, to remember uh, one of our dear families that we love, the Phillipses, uh, this afternoon. Um, Doug and Tracy will be laying to rest. Doug's dad, who uh, went home to be with the Lord um, Friday morning. And um, just like we talked about on Thursday afternoon, Doug, God is never more faithful to us than He is in that moment when He takes us from this life to his very presence. And so um, we are standing with you, praying with you, we love you, and we know that God will strengthen your hearts and comfort you by the power of the, of the Holy Spirit. Um, let's go to the Lord in prayer together before we look at our text. Uh, Father, we do rejoice today at the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Um, and Father, uh, we are thankful that even as we grieve, we do not grieve like those who have no hope. Because our faith, our belief, our hope is living. It is powerful. And it is because of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ that those who die in the Lord are raised to a life to come. And so, God, we praise you for your faithfulness. And today, as we turn to the Word of God, Father, may your Word be our guide, your Holy Spirit our teacher, and your glory our chief concern. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was um, growing up in the small town of Fordsville in Kentucky, a small uh, farming community of about 400 people. I went to the same school for 12 years and when it would rain or especially in the winter time we always got to have recess in the gym and when we got to have recess in the gym the game that we always wanted to play was dodgeball and what a game. Uh, you know, the teacher would rotate uh, two students before we would go into the gym, who would be captains. And when it was your turn to be captain, listen, you were king. Right? You were king. Everybody wanted to be on your team. Uh, you always got the best seat in the lunchroom because recess often came right after that. Uh, you got to sit by the prettiest girl in the cafeteria. Your buddies all wanted you to recruit them. It was like an NBA draft. I mean, it was really something. And when it came time to pick sides, you know, everybody kind of lined up in the gym and the two captains took their place and uh, one would pick and then another and another and another until all the teams were picked. And of course, when you were captain, who did you always pick first? You always picked your athletic buddies. And you know, when you would pick your athletic buddies, they would come up to you and, man, they're high-fiving you. Yeah, you know, teammates for life. Now, you're in fourth grade. Um, but you're, you know, you're going to be teammates for life. And when all of the, uh, you know, your athletic buddies were picked, uh, who did you pick next? Um, you know, well, you never picked the pretty girls for this reason. 
you wanted the pretty girls to be on the opposite team, right? Because when it came time for the game to start, if the pretty girls got the ball and they picked you out and tried to put you out, then you knew they liked you, right? Or if you got the ball first, you would immediately go for that pretty girl. Now, you never threw at the head. Right, But you always took them out first, not the best players on the other team, the pretty girl on the other team. And you would aim for the legs or the feet. You wanted to just lightly put them out of the game so that then they could you know, sit on the sideline and watch your athletic abilities you know, through the rest of the game. I, I, anyway, I, I digress. At some point in the game, when you're selecting your team, you end up you know, with that final group of students in the class. Right, and these are the students that neither captain really wants. They don't want to be in there. They don't want to play. They don't like sports. They don't like recess. And they didn't want to play the game, but are forced to. Right? There's always, if you're a school teacher, you know, because you watch kids on the playground, there's always just a few that you would look at them and say, no, I don't want them on my team. They're the ones nobody wants. I wonder if dodgeball tactics ever flesh themselves out in real life. I wonder if dodgeball tactics ever flesh themselves out in the life of the church. Do we have a tendency to go through life seeing people this way. You know, do we look at some people and say, wow, I mean, you look at that person, you look at that family, man, they would make great Christians. Or would we have a tendency to look at somebody and think, no way that that person would really fit in Christ's church. You'll remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount when we did an overview a couple of weeks ago and we looked at the last two verses of the Sermon on the Mount and it says that they were astonished, the crowds were astonished because Jesus taught with such authority. Now if you'll remember, one of the things we talked about was the fact that they were astonished, right? They were amazed, but it does not say they believed. So what does Jesus do? Some scholars would tell us Jesus walked down off the Mount of Beatitudes and walked a short distance right into Capernaum and proved that he was the Son of God. And in Matthew chapter 8, we are introduced to a leper, we are introduced to a Gentile, and we're introduced to a woman. Right? So we're introduced to a crowd of people that if you're a religious Jew in the first century time of Christ, you're looking at three groups of people, lepers and Gentiles and women, and a group that really, honestly, in their minds, nobody wants. Right? They're not on the in crowd, they're on the out crowd. So in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus demonstrates his authority as the Son of God. He heals a leper, 
He heals a a, a woman. He exercises authority. Later, Matthew shows us he calms seas. He uh, does the miraculous. He heals immediately. He heals instantaneously. He heals totally. There are no gimmicks. There's no fanfare. There's nothing. He just heals. And by the way, unlike those in the charismatic movement, he doesn't just heal some kind of low back pain or uh, some headache. I mean, he's healing crippled legs and withered hands and blind eyes and paralysis and the kinds of things that show beyond any shadow of a doubt that he is the Son of God. In verse 5, in our text today, This is when he entered Capernaum. A centurion came toward him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. So our text is about a Roman officer. Our text is about a centurion who goes straight to Jesus because his servant is ill. So here is this centurion, this Roman officer, by the way, he's called a centurion because he is in charge of a century of men, right? A, a hundred men. Typically, there are 80 to 100 men um, that a centurion oversees. Centurions were often not married because it was not uncommon for them to be sent to the farthest corners of the Roman Empire where they would have to maintain control and stability for Rome and sometimes they would live there for 15 or 20 years. So many of them were not even married and as a result of that their kind of family associations became the people closest to them and for many of them it would be even some of their servants. They began treating them like family. Here is a centurion who is a good man who seems to love this servant who is sick, paralyzed, suffering terribly. Not only that, this is a centurion who had been in Israel for a while, had been in Capernaum for a while, who is deeply moved by uh, the devotion of so many toward their God that he even devoted a large portion of his income to help build the synagogue there. So when he hears of this Jewish prophet named Jesus and he has the power to heal, the centurion comes looking for Jesus. So let's pick up with verse 7. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes to another, come, and he comes to my servant, do this, and he does it. So Jesus agrees to come and heal this, this, come to this man to his home and heal the servant. This man is coming to Jesus with deep humility. He is a man who recognizes authority. He understands and recognizes the power of Jesus and simply asks him to speak a word. He didn't need to see it to believe it. But just by the command of Jesus, he knew that healing would come. Verse 10 says, when Jesus heard this, he marveled 
and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Now, dear ones, this is remarkable. It's remarkable. Notice who is marveling at who. And it would make sense if this Roman centurion were marveling at Jesus. But it is Jesus marveling at this man. This Gentile. This Roman officer. Jesus is marveling at his faith. He turns to the crowd and he says, you know, I've been all up and down this land. I've been all up and down Israel and I have not seen this kind of faith anywhere in Israel. Jesus says to everyone that is standing around him, this is the greatest faith I've ever seen. Faith in what? Faith in the reality of who Jesus Christ is. Faith in the reality that Jesus was the Son of the living God. Faith in the reality that Jesus Christ was God. Here is a Roman centurion expressing his belief in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is marveling. By the way, there are two primary instances in Scripture where Jesus marvels. This is one. There is another in Mark's Gospel. We looked at it just a short while ago. You'll remember Jesus is in Nazareth. He is in his hometown, right? And their response is, well, isn't this Joseph's son? He stands up, right, and he reads from Isaiah 61. And today this text is, uh, you know, come to life. It's fulfilled in your hearing. And they were astonished. And they were marveling and saying, isn't this, you know, didn't we watch this little boy grow up with our, you know, sons playing? The only two instances we see of Jesus marveling. So it's interesting. What causes Jesus to marvel? What is it that causes Jesus to be astonished? One, he is astonished by the faith of those who shouldn't even have it. And he is also astonished at the lack of faith of those who should. You see, dear ones, this is not just a statement about this centurion's faith. This is also a rebuke of those in his presence who should have been the ones to have it. This man was an outsider. He was a Gentile. He was the last pick in a game of Jewish dodgeball. He was a soldier of Rome. And Jesus says, he's got the greatest faith I've ever seen. This is Jesus saying to the Jews... I should have found it here. (laughs) I should have found it in you. You're the sons and daughters of Abraham. 
You're the people of the covenant promises of God. You're the inheritors of the land. I should have seen it in you. But I haven't found it in you. Then he says this. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Most Jews looked forward to the day when all Jews who were scattered from east to west would return to Jerusalem to enjoy the company of the Messiah in a great banquet. And now Jesus speaks of Gentile participation. A Gentile, in a Jew's mind, is just going to defile the table. (laughs) Can't have that. But Jesus speaks of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob sitting down with Gentiles in a great feast. Now, can I ask you today, church, does that not strike a chord in your heart? It is something to know, isn't it? 2,000 years later, here we sit. In a congregation of Gentiles who one day (laughs) in the millennial kingdom in the future will recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, but the sons of the kingdom? By the way, who are they? They're the Jews. He says many Jews will be thrown out into outer darkness having forfeited their inheritance. Thrown out into outer darkness through their unbelief. They are called sons of the kingdom because they are the inheritors of the promise. They're the bloodline of the covenant. The covenant privileges were given to them. But when the kingdom comes, they're going to get thrown out. Why? It is because you do not enter the kingdom on the basis of your flesh. You do not enter the kingdom on the basis of any earthly privilege. You inherit the kingdom in one way and only one way. You inherit the kingdom of God on the basis of personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Let me ask you, church, how many of you believe heaven will be a real place? Yeah, yeah, you bet. There will also be a real place called hell. A place of darkness. A place of fire. Torment. Created by God 
for eternal punishment. He says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know what that is? That's the effect of the darkness. That is the effect of the sin. It is here that we find the loss of all happiness, the loss of all joy, the excruciating torment of darkness for all eternity. This narrative ends with just simple word. To the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Again, the power of the divine Son of God who can heal even at a distance just by the word of His mouth. So let's take this narrative and just spend a moment or two thinking about how it fits. Right? What are some application that we can just at least let set on our mind and heart for a little while? Well, I, I would say a couple of things. Uh, number one, um, let's be careful not to judge who we think is in or out when it comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Um, do any of you guys remember the very first episode of the TV show American Idol? 2002. Does it surprise you to know that that TV show has been on for 17 years? I, I want to be confessional this morning because I believe that confession is good for the soul. I actually cast a vote once on American Idol uh, several years ago, at 2006 to be exact. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I mean, I grew up on rock and roll. So one year in 2006, you had a singer by the name of Chris Daltrey. You know, and I liked him. And, uh, you know, we watched it, and I actually dialed up whatever number it is you dialed up and voted. But, you know, that show, if you're not familiar with it, um, a contestant goes before a panel of judges, and basically they're judged sometimes by how they look. I've heard people that could sing really, really well, but if they didn't fit that outward, you know, number, sometimes they didn't get pushed through and so you'd be judged on how you look and how you sing and if you make it to Hollywood then you make it to the round of 24 and then when you get to the round of 24 you're not only judged by you know a panel of three judges you're also judged by the entire nation right everybody can call in and vote for their favorite and and so forth um, basically what is that it is the world picking who is in and who is out and we can do that spiritually. We can look at individuals who are different than us. Right? They don't look like us. They don't dress like us. They don't talk like us. Right? They don't live on our street or on our end of town or so on and so forth. So they're just different, right? So for some, it may be the color of their skin. For others, it may be the language that they speak. For others, it may be the education level that they possess. For others, it may be what they drive, and so on and so forth. And we can look at people in terms of in 
or out. And we can even become in that process, if we are not careful, very judgmental in the way that we look at individuals. How many of us have ever seen an, an individual and think, well, they need to fix that, they need to change that, they need to cover that? Or do we look at everyone as a man, a woman, a boy or girl created in the image of God, someone whom the Father dearly loves and for whom the Son of God laid down His life. Let's not determine in our mind who is in and out when it comes to faith. Our staff read a book together a few years ago and it was making a point about future pastors and one of the points I thought believe it or not was a really strong point because the author was saying you may not even recognize the future pastor of your church because he might be drunk right now but the Spirit of God might alter his life so don't judge who you think is in or out when it comes to faith number two Aren't you thankful that God loves to give grace to people who don't look like His kind of people? And by the way, do you know how I know that's true? Because I'm standing right here looking at a crowd of them, right? Just like you look back at me, and you look at me, right? I wish every one of you had an opportunity to walk into my hometown and speak to people who have lived there all their lives, who watched me grow up when I was a tot, all through those children years and teenage years. And when God called me to preach and I first made that public and began to preach, it was like, we'll give that three weeks. Right? One of the reasons why we know that God loves to give grace to people who don't look like His kind of people is because we can just look at everybody sitting on the rows by us and know that that's true. Amen? I am so thankful. I love when I study the book of Revelation and hear that God is going to draw a crowd to the table from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and I rejoice in that and I praise God for that and I thank God for that because I know that that's a description of my own life apart from Christ and your own life apart from Christ Jesus. So we we rejoice I'm so thankful, and so are you, as the song says, that though my sins, they are many, hallelujah, and praise God, His mercy is more. Third, saving faith puts all hope for eternal life in Jesus Christ alone. Dear ones, saving faith does not approach Jesus with I deserve this. Saving faith approaches Jesus the way the centurion approached Jesus. With humility. He comes before Christ and recognizes who He is and who we are. Saving faith doesn't approach Jesus with I deserve this. Saving faith approaches Jesus with I don't deserve this. 
Saving faith doesn't say, well, Jesus, look at all the good that I've done. Look at all these works that I'm offering you today. Look at this merit-based scholarship. (laughs) Saving faith says, Jesus, I'm nothing. And so I'm looking at your merits today. I'm looking at your life, Jesus. I'm looking at how you represented perfect obedience before the Father. Something I've never done even for a moment in my life. I'm looking at you, Jesus. And I'm looking at your suffering. I'm looking at your sacrifice. I'm looking at what you offered in my stead. How you went to the cross and laid down your life in my place. I'm looking at you, Jesus. I'm looking at what you did. I'm looking at you, Jesus, on that first day of the week morning when they came to anoint your body and it was gone because you raised from the dead. I'm looking at you, Jesus, because you ascended into heaven. And I'm looking at you, Jesus, because one day you're going to come back and take us to be with you forever. Saving faith never says, look at what I've done. Saving faith always says, I'm nothing, Jesus, and I look at what you have done. Saving faith doesn't say, Jesus, keep your eye focused on me. Saving faith always says, Jesus, I look to you and to you alone. As the son of the living God, and I surrender my life to you, And from this day forward, I am going to follow you and you alone for the rest of my life. Right? I'm turning away from all known sin. And I'm following after the Lord Jesus Christ. And the great news is, dear ones, you and I can have this kind of faith today. If we humble ourselves and put all our hope and trust in Jesus. Right? Jesus never says... You know, go do community service. Uh, Go, um, you know, take care of your addiction first. He just invites us to come and experience His saving power. You know how I know that? Because I was a teenage mess when I came to faith in Jesus Christ. And so I rejoice in His grace. But I must also say to you in closing today that there is a place of outer darkness of fire and torment, of weeping and gnashing of teeth that will be non-stop and it awaits all who reject Jesus Christ. And so, can I say to you this morning that soon and very soon we are going to see the King and I know beyond any shadow of a doubt that I've got a place at the table and I'm going to recline with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Are you certain that you've got a seat reserved for you at the table of the king? Because if you don't, today is the day of salvation. To come and trust in him. And for believers today, can I just remind you of this? 
One of the reasons why I love this story is the centurion does what every single one of us need to continue doing every day of our life. Why? Because we're broken, sinful, messed up people living in a broken, sinful, messed up world. And so what is it that we need to do day by day by day? We constantly come to Jesus for help. Aren't you thankful today? You ought to walk away here rejoicing. I've got someone that I can cast my cares upon because I know he cares for me. That is your Savior.